James chapter 5, and reading from verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to think about that for a few minutes together now, but before we do that, let me pray for us and ask for God's help. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we pray that you would please help each of us over the coming few minutes. Please would you help me to speak clearly and faithfully. And we ask, Lord, that you you would enable each of us to hear you clearly and to respond faithfully as you would have us respond. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, then... I think it's fair to say that we live in the age of the instant, where we can get or we can do or we can achieve what we want in less time than ever before. Fast food has been around for a while now, that isn't all that new, but fast shopping is now a thing too. We can pay for it overnight or even in some cases same day delivery and you can do that now with a single click. Because the three or four clicks it used to take was just a colossal waste of time. Those are trivial examples, but examples of a very real trend. A trend that's had an effect on us as human beings. Living in an age of instancy, well, it might well have had an effect on our capacity for waiting. I read recently about an academic study where they gave a group of people the choice to either sit alone in a room for a fixed period of time with nothing to entertain them but their own imaginations, or to sit in that same room and give themselves a painful electric shock. And um, about 70% of the men in the group chose to give themselves an electric shock rather than sitting alone with their thoughts. Perhaps counterintuitively, our many privileges living in the Western world have made us less patient than ever before. And I do wonder if we might be in a similar cultural moment when it comes to living life as a committed Christian in the Western world, that the privileges we enjoy living at this point in time and in this part of the world have perhaps made us less patient than we ever have been before. 
We've lived during what has been a uniquely comfortable time to be a Christian over the past hundred or so years in Scotland and the UK, when the Christian faith was culturally accepted and was in fact part of, well, it was, it was in with the bricks really with UK society. That is less and less the case now, of course. And so it can be surprising when we find ourselves under the cosh from the culture in which we live as Christians. Easy to become frustrated with that even, that people aren't affording us as Christians or the Christian faith more generally the kind of respect that they ought. And it isn't just pressures from the outside that play into our shrinking capacity for for patience or for forbearance, it's pressures from within the local church too. If we don't feel that a, a church is scratching my particular itch, or we feel that people there are are being particularly difficult to deal with, there's no need for us to be patient anymore because we can just try another. We live in a consumeristic age and there are plenty of other churches in this city and there are plenty online. We don't even need to leave the comfort of our homes. One of them might be a better fit for my particular needs. Just as it's easy to be impatient generally at this point in time, I suspect it's really been more easy to be impatient as a Christian, whether as a result of pressures from without or pressures from within. Now, we might well be in the middle of a particular cultural moment as Christians and as a church. But it is fair to say, too, that the difficulty with remaining patient as a Christian is nothing new. And we know it's nothing new because James chapter 5 This is the penultimate in our Sunday evening studies in the book of James. And patience is very much the key idea in our little unit this evening. I wonder if you spotted that as I read the passage a few moments ago. Just notice with me again, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, says James. Or later in verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it. Or we read on to verse 10 as an example of suffering and patience. The key imperative, the key command is a command to be patient. And as I've already alluded to, patience is definitely not the air we breathe in the Western world. But there are some factors that can make patience that bit easier. Imagine the small child who's forced to sit through a particularly boring meeting with their parents, when that child's parents repeatedly tell him or her to just be patient, the child might well eventually begin to think, mum and dad are just fobbing me off. There isn't any real hope of this meeting ending anytime soon. And there's a difference between that call to be patient and the patience of that same small child, waiting not for a meeting to be over, but for the school holidays to start. Because the first kind of patience, well, it's quite a painful experience, really. It doesn't have any end in sight. But the second kind of patience is focused on something specific, something concrete. There is literally a date in the diary, and it's that second kind of waiting, the concrete, looking forward kind of patience for which James is advocating in James chapter 5. And we'll see that under our first heading this evening. The compassionate just judge is coming 
again. Now, um, we've already seen that patience is the key command of verses 7 to 12. But notice that it is a patience with a particular endpoint in view. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. There's an end point to the waiting for which James is advocating, the day when Jesus returns. And he draws our eyes to that horizon repeatedly through this short unit. Verse 8, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand, says James. Or again in verse 9, behold, the judge is standing at the door. Writ large on James's command to be patient is the fact that Jesus is coming back. And that his coming back is at hand. Now, some of you might remember that in the late 1970s, a man called Hal Lindsay tried to, to plot in a book called The Late Great Planet Earth the precise date of Jesus' return. And he, he studied the newspapers very closely, and he tried to study the, the, the Bible as closely as he could, and he tried to map what the newspapers were saying in uh, the time he was, uh, he was reading them against what the Bible says about the end of the world onto to those world events, to bring the two together. Uh, and in Hal Lindsay's estimate, uh, Jesus was to return no later than the end of 1988, which is a bit of a swing and a miss. I think we'll all have to agree. And some people have argued that James does something similar in James chapter 5. He says that the Lord's return notice is at hand, by which some people have understood him to mean that Jesus would return within James's own lifetime. And the fact that Jesus didn't return within James's own lifetime has been taken as proof that all James wrote thereafter ought to be discounted. But that's to misunderstand what James is saying, I think. Notice he says, verse 9, that the judge is standing at the door. His argument isn't that James is is coming back shortly necessarily, although of course he, he might. But what James is saying, I think, is that Jesus' return is at hand in the sense that it could happen at any time. Jesus could choose to open that door at any moment. And uh, that is good news, or at least that return will be good news. James gives us a particular reason that Jesus' return is something towards which we ought to look forward. Because the arrival of Jesus, says James in verse 9, is the arrival of a just judge. Now, the arrival of a judge might not sound like it's something to look forward to. At least not for us. But I wonder if it would have been very much something for James's first readers to look forward to. We've seen through this series in James that the Christians to whom James was writing were under the cosh. They were facing difficulties from multiple directions. In fact, James opens the letter by saying this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Notice when, not if. They are definitely coming if they're not already here. And we've been given hints of the specifics of those trials through the letter. Uh, They seem to have been getting grief from the people they were living and working among, for example, making it difficult to live as Christians in a secular world. And it's also likely that things were being made difficult for them for inside the church. That there were Christians who had power in the secular world and wanted to bring that power to bear within the structures of the church. That seems to have been going on. And so I wonder if you can see why it would be a relief And in fact, a real comfort 
to know that not only would there come a day when those difficulties would be at an end, but that the people who are making life so hard for you, they're not going to get away with it. That even if you can't see them being held to account here and now, well, one day you will. And can I just say, that isn't just good news for James's first readers. It is good news for us too. Let me ask you, what kind of justice can you hope for for the people who have wronged you through the course of your life? I mean, really wronged you, perhaps long distant in the past, and yet who have lived out the rest of their lives in relative peace. They've not really seemed to get any kind of justice for how they've behaved. What kind of justice can you hope for? See, I guess if you're an atheist, your answer has to be none. Because this world is all there is, and that individual has evaded justice, and therefore they've got away with it. Isn't that just a painfully unjust thought? But you see, for the Christian, that is not how you have to answer that question. Because part of God's plan for the world is to bring about ultimate justice, to rightly judge all evil and darkness, even in those who seem to get away with it in this life. And that could happen at any moment, says James, because Jesus, the just judge, is coming again. Now, I hope you can see why that would be good news, both for James's first readers and for us. But we aren't only being reminded about Jesus' return because it is good news. We're being reminded about it because if you're a Christian, that good news should have a material effect on your life. In particular, it should help you to wait patiently. James gives us three illustrations of what that ought to look like, actually, and we're just going to walk through each of those now. Endure patiently, firstly, like the farmer. Now, you might feel that I've been a bit vague so far about the kinds of difficulties we're being called to endure by James in James chapter 5. Is James preparing Christians to deal with suffering from persecution or from relational difficulties inside the church? Or is he preparing them to deal with suffering more generally, the, the kind we all face just by virtue of living in a fallen world? Well, yes, yes, and yes, I think. James is pretty broad about the kind of suffering he's talking about. And that is double underlined by the sheer breadth of the illustrations he gives us for what it looks like to wait patiently. Notice, firstly, the farmer. Now, there are some contexts in which a farming illustration needs no explanation. In the church I grew up in, in Ayrshire, for example, there were a few farmers as part of the congregation, one of whom is now my brother-in-law, in fact, and they were hardy folk. And they were used to hard work and to long hours. And they are used to waiting. Verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. See, in the example James gives... The farmer's waiting for the early rain so that the soil is ready for sowing seed and then for later rain so that the seeds will grow. Now, I'm guessing that Scottish farmers generally have to do less waiting for rain than farmers in other parts of the world, but they do still have to wait, to wait for the precious fruit of the earth, for the joy of the harvest. And so too for the Christian. 
for the Christian waiting patiently will come Jesus. Jesus will return and he will bring overwhelming joy as he does so. Now notice that the farmer illustration doesn't actually seem to identify any particular kind of hardship through which you ought to be waiting. The point of the illustration is quite simple. Wait wait patiently because good stuff will come in the end. But not so the second two illustrations. Things get a bit more specific with those. Notice, secondly, endure patiently like the prophets. Just read with me again, verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. Now, um, Old Testament prophets tended to have a bit of a, a rough gig. Pretty much all of them, actually. And in fact, in the New Testament, the, the first martyr of the Christian church, a man called Stephen, uh, preached a sermon to some Jews in Acts chapter 7, in which Stephen says this. He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And the reason he asks that question is it's shorter to list those which they didn't persecute than those those which they didn't persecute than those which they did because they persecuted all of them. The prophets had a very difficult time. Where did that difficult time come from? Well, from people. People who were opposed to God and who were opposed to God's message. And that does mean that the kind of suffering James is looking to address, I think, Well, it has to include the kinds of pressures that God's people face for sticking with him. See, it can be frustrating to get grief for following Jesus and simply for trying to stick with him. Perhaps being misrepresented by colleagues as as being a bit of a killjoy because you don't always join in with their chat. I was speaking to someone just a couple of days ago who uh, outlined to me that in the staff room at work, they're very often the butt of the joke. That can be a frustrating thing over time. It can be hard to remain patient over time. And in fact, I found myself getting quite uptight about some of the discussion in the public sphere a few months ago. Perhaps you did too. You might remember that one of the politicians, um, who's very um, senior in our country at the time, Kate Forbes, articulated some fairly mainstream biblical views on a number of, of, of social issues. And um, she was shot down by another politician who claimed to be a Christian too but who called Forbes out as being, well, she was outdated and backward, I think, were the words that were used. Perhaps even more frustratingly, a former moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland said that Forbes was being disingenuous by affirming a biblical worldview on marriage. It is immensely frustrating for someone who ought to know better to completely undermine the teaching of the Bible And to make life so much harder for those who want to stick with it, to remain faithful to Jesus and his word. And in the face of that frustration, James would say, I think, be like the prophets. They stuck with God, they stuck with his word, and remained patient and steadfast, even as the brickbat started flying. You do likewise. So, Be like the farmer, be like the prophets, and lastly, be like Job. 
Some of you will know Job's story. He was, uh, Job is a book in the Old Testament, if you've never heard of it before. And it tells us about a man called Job who had it all. He had fortune and family and reputation, and he was a very prosperous man indeed. And he was also a God-fearing man. He worshipped God with a genuinely devoted heart, as far as we can tell. But as you read through the book, we're told that um, Satan wanted to prove that Job's faith was only skin deep. He was a fair-weather believer. Take all of his money and his family and his prosperity away from him, said Satan, and, and Job won't be so pious anymore. And God allowed Satan to do so in the book of Job. And so Job lost everything. Family and possessions. And you might understand why someone like that would begin to lose their patience. Patience with the world. Patience with life on the whole. Patience even with God. And yet... Although the suffering in Job's life could have been enough to cause him to curse God, well, he didn't. He remained steadfast, and God remained kind. And so we have three examples of patient waiting, the farmer, the prophets, and Job. And on each occasion, notice, their patience ends with joy. For the farmer, verse 7, with crops growing. For the prophets, verse 11, who were blessed. And for Job, verse 11, to whom God was compassionate and kind. And again, just think of how that would help James's first readers in those fragile churches in the first century. Under pressure from the world around them, pressure of, of persecution. And under pressure within. What will keep you going in the midst of all of that? Will a, a sort of weak sense, a sort of cross your fingers kind of hope that things will turn out okay in the end, will that be enough to keep you going? No, what will keep you going is certain hope for the future. Knowing that it's going to be good. And knowing that it's going to happen for sure. That there will be an ultimate reckoning for evil. That justice will be done in the world. Jesus will come again in judgment and salvation. And if that was true for the churches, churches to whom James was writing, well, it's true for us too. If you ever begin to wonder whether it's really worth keeping going in the Christian life, perhaps opposition or the temptation to compromise morally, perhaps even the temptation to walk away from the Christian church altogether because it's so frustrating and it's wearing you down, to where will you look for strength and hope to keep going? Well, James would not have you cross your fingers and just sort of hope in a vague sense that things will work out okay in the end. You can be sure that Jesus will return. You can be certain that he will judge those who have opposed him and will rescue his people. Your future and the future of the world is guaranteed. And so in the meantime, endure patiently. Like the farmer, like the prophets, and like Job. But, as is often the case for James, that sort of settled conviction, that hope for the future that gives us patience here and now, well, even that isn't a vague thing. It isn't just an idea or a feeling. 
And James wants us to see that it cashes out in real life situations. It cashes out in how we behave day by day. And James explains how it cashes out in quite a surprising way, in fact. He says that patient waiting will look like guarded speaking. Let's think about that under our final heading this evening. Guarding your tongue against grumbling. I've already mentioned that the Christians to whom James was writing were under the cosh in various different ways. And it it seems likely that those pressures were taking their toll inside the local church. That people were taking those stresses out on one another. And that so easily can be the case, can't it? So often the people who are closest to us, uh, to whom we vent when we're under pressure and under stress... And one way in which that kind of venting was expressing itself, it seems, was with people's speech inside the local church. We've spent a number of Sundays in James thinking about the importance of guarding our tongues. And he returns to that idea in chapter 5. Notice verse 9. Don't grumble against one another, brothers. Now, it is important, I think, to be clear about what this is not saying. James is not saying that there's no space in the Christian life for pointing out problems where they exist, whether in the the way a local church is being led or or the way particular people are behaving. You know, it is important that genuine problems are identified and addressed in love where they can be and that there is accountability. So James isn't shutting that kind of thing down in what he says. And yet there is a sense that there's a difference between what we might call accountability And what James calls grumbling. And actually one way in which you might be able to tell one from the other. Is by the person to whom the critical comments are directed. If your critique of someone or a situation is only ever spoken behind the back of the troublesome person. If it's only ever spoken over the lunch table on a Sunday for example. It's worth considering whether the end goal of those comments is is accountability Or it's just to grumble, to vent. And for clarity, it's every bit as possible for a person in leadership in a local church to grumble at a member as it is for a member to grumble at their leadership. What James would ask, I think, is what are you hoping to achieve by your grumbling? Because Jesus, the just judge, is going to come back one day, waiting patiently for him to return Well, it will involve leaving it to him to deal with every difficult situation, not just grumbling about it yourself. Waiting patiently will involve guarding your tongue, says James, against grumbling. And it will also involve, finally, guarding your tongue against lying. Just read with me verse 12 again. But above all, my brothers... Do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, this isn't the easiest of verses to tease apart and work out why he suddenly starts talking about swearing oaths. I think the sense of it, though, is that guarding your tongue will look like speaking the truth plainly. Not needing to swear on something to prove that you're telling the truth because you're known for saying what you mean and meaning what you say. And again, I do wonder whether that's what we envisage patient waiting to look like. Telling the truth. And yet it isn't all that hard to see how grumbling and lying might go hand in hand. When a grumble is made behind someone's back, 
and is then covered up with smiles and warmth when you look at them in the eye. Or perhaps that grumble then turns into a rumor, which is then spread. Patient endurance will look like guarded tongues, says James, guarded from grumbling and guarded from lying. Now, as we close, let's try and draw some of those threads together. And firstly, if you're a Christian, let me just say it's worth acknowledging that we live in an age where impatience really is the air we breathe. And that could so easily bear itself out in how we treat one another in a local church. I'll be honest and say I don't see or hear much of it in Hebron. I've said that pretty much every week we've worked through the book of James. I don't see or hear lots of this in Hebron. But in particular with this issue, as pressure ramps up for Christians in Scotland over the coming years, well, it isn't hard to envisage that pressure being vented within a local church, is it? The key James gives us to tackle that kind of thing in James 5 is remembering Jesus is coming back. And in fact, he takes us further than than remembering as a sort of passive thing. Notice he says, verse 8, establish your hearts. Root yourselves in the fact that Jesus is coming again as judge. Remind yourself, preach to yourself, that when he does, all wrongs will be made right. So wait for him patiently. By guarding your tongue as you do so. If you're joining us this evening and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, firstly, again, let me say how pleased we are that you're here. But I do wonder if you've been feeling perhaps a tad nervous over the past few minutes, that you're in a room full of people who are a bit delusional, and that Christians are a lunatic fringe waiting for the return of their Lord. That's how it's often understood in our culture. Before you dismiss what I've said, though, I do appreciate that what is described in James 5 might sound quite remarkable, that the Lord Jesus will return one day as a just judge. But we can have confidence that it isn't make-believe. Because something else that you might otherwise dismiss as fiction, as make-believe, well, it has already happened in time and space history. The physical historical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, well, that is proof that he has defeated death. And if the resurrection really happened, well, then you have to take seriously what he says when he claims to be God himself, when he says that he's going to come back to rescue and to judge. And so at the very least, can I encourage you to find out more about him? To look at one of the eyewitness accounts of his life, death and resurrection for yourself. Whatever you do, though, don't dismiss him without even engaging with him. Because if he is who he says he is, he's the God of the universe, and he's coming again. And that changes everything. Let me pray for us as we draw to a close. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a God who has revealed himself to us. You you have revealed for us everything we need to know to keep us going, enduring all the way to the end. We know you will return, Lord Jesus, in judgment and in glory, and we praise you for that and haste the day. 
And we ask that you would please enable each of us to keep these words, to take them to heart and remain faithful to you, even amid trials and difficulties, that we would be people who wait patiently. We ask all of this in trusting ourselves into the care of our Savior and our King, the one who is to return, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for his sake. Amen.